less stress, more time, more money. Welcome to the Cash Flow Contractor interview. Martin, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Probably yeah. I don't want to date this, but this is the day after the revolution started. So <laughs> by the time this airs, I hope we're still a country. Yeah. We, we will war. be. We will be. No. Yeah. Crazy times that we're in. Um, and I think that uh, there's there's a lot of division, but I think through that that terrible thing that happened at the Capitol, I think there's going to be some unity too. So Yep. And it just emphasizes the importance to anybody listening that just keep your hand on the plow. Yeah. You know, that very, very few people up there uh, protesting and doing the wrong things, but we just keep our hand on the plow, keep producing because that's how we get through all this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, excited to set this up. You've got a good friend on uh, the podcast today. Um, How did you, how did you meet Christine? I saw Christine speak at a technology center. I don't know if you remember that, Christine, but uh, she gave a really good talk and then she handed out a, a sheet of paper that we'll be talking about that, of course, when I find excellent stuff, I grab it, put it in my library. But yeah. at the very bottom, it says, um, complying with this regulation, in other words, not reproducing or copy, stealing stuff, is a mark of a truly ethical leader. For reprint permission, call me. And I did. And she said, okay. And I thought, good. I feel, I feel good about that. And every time I use it, I give credit. And uh, just in passing, giving credit to people does not diminish you. I I don't think, I think it uh, enhances your credibility. And then also uh, just people, it shows you're well read if nothing else, but that's an aside, but give credit where credit is due. Absolutely. Well, um, Christine, we're happy to welcome you on the, the show. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are all about providing contractors with less stress, more time, and more money. And I know that what we're going to talk about today has a lot to do with all three of those things. And I know that, that contractors out there have a lot of team stress, employee stress. Uh, they've also got a little bit of a hard time with time. And uh, I know that a lot of that is due to employees. And then I know that they're tired of wasting money on certain employees. So we're going to cover a lot of different areas today. But uh, first off, Christine, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? How did you get started and what you do? And what do you do? Well, I'm originally from southern New Jersey, along the beautiful Jersey Shore. (laughs) Born and raised, I went to college there, then found my way to Oklahoma almost three decades ago now. Wow. And I found that I fell in love with the people here. A little different than New Jersey, huh? A lot different than New Jersey. And for many, many years, I was a recruiter and began to recognize that most people were not aware that this was an employee-driven market and began to speak to chambers of was keynoting at conferences and conventions, really just as a means to educate and communicate to employees all over the United States that the days where the employer held all the cards were long gone and that it was time for them to interview employers right back. 
And that morphed into an entrepreneurial opportunity that happened quite by accident was I became pregnant with my first and last kid at 36 years old and I didn't oh, want wow. to go back to the corporate world. So I started my own business with the help of some really spectacular mentors and support husband who was very supportive of it. And I started a consulting firm that primarily organizations who want to create workplace cultures where they can be award-winning such as to attract and engage and train and keep ideal fit talent. So our purpose as a consulting firm is helping organizations create that award-winning culture where employees line up outside the door to apply, that they're able to really pick the best of the best, and then have leadership in these companies create a culture that sees their role as engaging and extracting peak performance from these amazing people. And in turn, um, profit is a direct vertical ascent yeah. once you can create that culture. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, when you talk about profit being, you know, shooting up from there, tell us a little bit more about that. Why, why do you see that happening whenever people get their employee in their culture, right? Their employees in their culture, right? I'm asked that question a lot, particularly from potential clients who say, this is all well and good. And I, I bought, I believe, but how, What's the secret sauce here? What's that secret ingredient? How do you do this? Um, you know, it's theoretical to this point. Then what's the strategy? So when you go into an organization, what's the first thing you're going to do, Sexter? What's the second thing you're going to do? How can you measure if we're advancing toward this culture that you speak of? And I've got it down to just one word, and it's trust. That organizations that have high trust in all aspects – whether it be trust between leadership and employees or direct reports, trust across peer levels, trust, trust with new hires, then when you go in there and you can measure trust quite easily, frankly, you can you can get measurable and objective and tangible. That the higher those numbers are, the correlation truly exists that there's going to be a high performing, high productive profit-driven culture. Yeah. So there's so much to unpack from that. Um, and I want to kind of dive deeper into how you kind of came into this. Like so you were talking about you giving keynotes and you, you came to this realization <clears throat> that it was an employee-driven market. Tell us a little bit about how you came to that realization. Like what, give me some examples or stories that you were seeing real life in person that were like, whoa, we, like this you is might shocking. start by defining employee driven. I wrote that down. What's an employee sure. driven market as opposed to what's the opposite of that? Employee driven market is one where the unemployment rate is at zero and or very, very low. And, and when I define it for clients and audiences, anytime you've got unemployment at 5% or less, in essence, you have an employee-driven market whereby there are more jobs available than people to have them. And I have found even in more recent times, even when maybe unemployment numbers would go up, there, there remains what there is a mismatch of talent. So there's a, you may find that there's a, people that are looking for work and there's a lot of jobs out there, but the skill sets owned by the people seeking work doesn't always match what the open jobs are. So th this can take you in a whole other direction regarding reskilling or re 
uh, learning new skills to match the current demand. But back to an employee-driven market is one where employees really have uh, the opportunity to interview and potentially have multiple job offers because of their skill set combined with their work ethic makes what I call a platinum collar worker. And really most of my work has been done in industrial based or male dominated industry. So for a long time, I was a recruiter for a staffing agency that would say, okay, Sexter, we need 275 welders, um, 345 machinists. And um, also while you're at it, find us a bunch of nurses. Um, and so I recognized that these people were in hot demand and how great it would be to know that you are, um, in a position of power where you can, it's time to turn the tables that it's time for you to recognize that the demand for you is there. And I want you to find ideal fit opportunity. And I want you to interview that employer right back. So we began to teach employees who up until that time really felt like, the whole interview process was driven by the employer. And this was exemplified by questions from employers such as, so why should I hire you? You know, give me three reasons. And they sit back and kick back in their chairs with a pompous, arrogant body language. Um, and, and that's actually completely the opposite now. Um, I encourage yeah. people seeking work to really look for that match between the core values of the organization, the culture of the organization, and say, why should I work here? Yeah. Why should I work here? And so I find that now both employer and employee have recognized that we do want that core values match. We do want that cultural match, no matter what the amount of unemployment is, that on paper we may look good together, but it really takes the dynamic of mm. what's the day-to-day -day culture going to be like. I often equate finding and keeping a job to marriage that so many employers in their desperate, they're desperate to fill those jobs. They're, they're losing money. They're starting to really get to a point where there's pressure from above saying you better fill these openings. And so employers would get to the point where they would hire any old mammal who was interested in the role and they would offer a job on the first interview. Well, to me, that sounds like somebody proposing on the first date. It's yeah. really not a sage or wise strategy to, to discern if this is a good match or not. So what I'm saying is if you're going to consider an opportunity employee, potential employer applicant, take your time and yeah. think of it like a marriage. So interview them right back. Don't let it be one sided and ask for things such as may I spend two or three days actually in the role for which I'm being considered mm -hmm. and have access to all employees to ask whatever it is I'd like to ask as it pertains to a true day in the life or experiences here over time. Yeah. And that is essentially like living together. So you get to this opportunity to have a lot more realistic experience and what it's going to feel like to work in that role. And that this way you, can then ask other employees, well, what's the real deal here as it pertains to culture? What is your opinion as to why there's some turnover? Why do you stay, et cetera, et cetera. And then I am a really big believer and then only after um, some additional strategies similar to that, that somebody should say, I do, or that means that um, you're hired. Right. And similar to marriage, um, it's binding and legal. Once you say you're hired and you fill out that um, I-9 and 
W-4, that's a legally binding agreement similar to signing your marital contract. And just like when it doesn't work out and there's divorce or you have to release, Mm -hmm. terminate or quit, uh, it can get ugly. It's emotional. It can involve lawyers. It's more costly. Yeah. And lots of money. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting that you talk about this, um, you know, pompous attitude of the employer, you know, uh, back in the day, and they're going to just grill the the interviewee. Um, And I think for a lot of people going into jobs, people that are looking for work, they honestly still have that mentality of they're walking into that kind of room. Uh, I've noticed it with all the employees that I've interviewed. um, And I think it's, there's a huge opportunity to gain that trust that you talk about by not being that guy in that person in the interview process by really from the employer standpoint, from the employer standpoint, like if I go into the interview and I am very courteous and I'm very inquisitive and, and I'm actually interested in what they care about, I think it really goes a long way with that person that's interviewing like, Oh wow. Like I actually feel pretty comfortable now. And wow, this is somewhere that I want to work. Um, I trust this person a little bit better. Uh, and then also not just giving them five minutes for questions, but giving them like several minutes for questions and even already having some questions prepped as if you were from their side, I think has also gone a long way in helping them to feel like, oh, wow, like they care about my thinking and what I care about. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting thing and a good opportunity. Like you talk about with the pompous uh, employer or interviewer you can come in and if you come in differently, then it's going to completely shift how that interview goes. And really that's the first impression, which carries on throughout the relationship, right? Certainly. I I encourage employers to give potential candidates, particularly those that maybe have come down to the final three, what I consider, what I call the all access pass. Mm. And you give them this all access pass and it says you, you have access to this organization at all levels. You have, um, if there's any specific person you want to speak with, mm. even those that no longer work here, we would encourage you to do that. Yeah. And yes, when employees come in prepared, and I do encourage them to come very prepared with at least 20 questions, it shows me yeah. that this is a candidate who's very serious about this opportunity. It's not just a job, that they're looking at the potential for long-term commitment. And, and I often say that there's... Um, seven questions that I believe are really the most powerful questions you can ever ask in an interview. And one of my favorites is when you ask a candidate, do you have any questions for me? And assuming you're only on maybe the first or second interview and the candidate says, well, no, I think you've pretty much covered it all. <laughs> I wish I had a button on the side of my desk where a little trap door would open and that candidate would fall through. <laughs> and then next one would show up. Of course, I'm being somewhat yeah. facetious here, but uh, you know, I don't want somebody wanting to marry me on the first or second date any more than I want a candidate totally ready to commit yeah. long-term career. And the more authority and responsibilities this person is going to have in their role, maybe they're in the B or C suite, the more questions, the more yeah. digging I want to see. Uh, I want to see that somebody's really taken this seriously. You know, you know I think... Uh, jumping ahead, back to something I've heard you talk about before, Christine, just to refine a little bit what you've already been talking about, but you've talked about leadership styles and the other one was command and control military. And that's kind of faded away. Would you elaborate on that a little bit? It's, 
it's what you said had changed, but you said it, you've just said it so well. Well, if you look back over the evolution of leadership, particularly in the United States, and I speak strictly to the traditions, the social mores, and the development of leaders as Americans, because a lot of what I speak about, particularly even with generations, it's a, it's a uniquely American experience. That if you look at where we were in the early 1900s, and again, I'm going to just put this all in one big quick synopsis here, that we were very much an agri-driven society economically and that people made their livings on their farms. That's how they generated income for their families. And most jobs were somehow related to your family's property. And then with the advent of in becoming more industrialized and particularly with the advent of World War One, we finally were able to have jobs outside of the farm and we went to work for other people that weren't our family members. And so when that began, the style of leadership that was adopted was one that had served our nation now really quite well for almost 100 years up until most recently, which was the military model that because I was your boss, that I had more tenure or more skill, that essentially that was enough, that you were to listen to me solely because my business card or the owner of the company um, and you either listened to me or you were fired. And we weren't, the employee at this point really was pretty subservient and you weren't really encouraged, actually discouraged to ask questions as to why are we doing this or could there be a better way? So, and again, this model really did serve us very, very well for a long time until, until uh, roughly about the time that millennials hit the workplace <laughs> and they became Dang the first group of employees who possessed a skill set that their people that were older in the workplace didn't have, and that was technology skills. Hmm. And in essence, based on the values that their own parents gave them, the Gen Xers, which was be independent, find the right job. If you find a job that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. This was the messaging given to millennials. And essentially they were platinum collar workers simply because they had technology skills that no one else had. So it basically, they came in and began to interview us back saying, what's it like to work here? I don't want to work for a boss hole. I want to work for somebody who's more of an advocate or a coach that I can develop my skills. I want to be part of a community. I want to be contributing not only just to my job, but what does this company do to aid its community or in its country that it's in? And in essence, it, it kind of slammed those baby boomers and some of the older Xers like myself back. It's like, wait a second, I'm supposed to be in control of this interview. You know, why should I hire you? And then they would start saying, well, wait a second, I've got five, five other or 10 other job offers because I have these tech skills. And they were the ones who said, I'm not going to come to work here and be lambasted or in a toxic environment. I'll just quit this job and I've got 10 other opportunities. And it was then, and again, this is a very basic description of how this happened. It was then that American leaders recognized, oh, if we want to find, engage, and keep these really skilled workers that we need so desperately, we're going to have to acquiesce to their, their essentially their, their requests. And I would like to be able to say that American leaders made this altruistic leap solely from the goodness of their hearts. <laughs> but my experience was that, no, it was really because of money. And yeah. um, if you wanted to keep a skilled 
you know, highly technical millennial, this is what we had to become. And then what I'm finding now, this is what's so encouraging to me, having watched this and consulted within this whole dynamic was now companies really do want to do it because it's the right thing. They, they, they don't, they themselves, even boomers and Xers like us, we don't, we don't want to work for a boss hole. And so it really became, if you wanted to extract peak performance from me, then I want to be able to trust. I want to be able to trust that you are an advocate for me, um, that you're not going to just pull the boss hole card or the tenure card. And it was also about the time when I saw companies drop their, I'll see where if you reach 20 years of tenure, you automatically became a supervisor. Hmm. So they realized that the really tenure really did not mean you were going to be a good supervisor or manager, really right. manager. It really had more to do with how can I create an environment with my immediate team where I am the deliverer of the tools in many ways, you can almost be parental where my job is to coach you, to advocate for you, to not always give you the answers, to let you learn, to allow you, but creating this relationship of trust. That's where it all comes back to that one yeah. word. Trust is the new green. And if you can create trust in your company, you're going to have money. You're going to create profit. That's a very long story to your no, question. It's, no, it's really that's, important. That's exactly what I was looking for. I, I'm a boomer. And so I crossed between, right? My natural bent is to like people and things. But it also, I know there are people listening to us that say, no, I'm the boss, damn it. They got to do what I tell them to do. And... <laughs> Some of it is, well, you know, you're talking about technology skills and Khalil and Ethan's ability to put this podcast on that I don't possess. But no, man, I'm looking for a skid loader driver. I'm looking for a guy who can pour concrete, you know, and they show up, they show up. If they don't, they don't. Are there advantages other than just being able to hire, hire millennials? I know the answer to that. <laughs> uh, to building a culture that's based on trust and not just, uh, you know, the fiat I'm the boss, I control the checks, and I'll fire your ass. Right. And I will share with you, Martin, and for your listeners, that the 23 years that I've owned this company, we primarily work with manufacturing and other industrialized, industrial-driven organizations where most of their employees are making an hourly wage. So we're very familiar with hiring people who are going to come in at an entry-level wage who really are either unskilled, semi-skilled. And yes, these concepts of trust and advocacy and development are what are universally human-based. So I apply them at all levels in the organization. And everybody wants that. It is a basic human need to be in a place where you're valued and you're wanted and you're needed. And you understand that while your job may be repetitive or even perceived to be menial, the great companies that are able to explain to their workers that it's not, that while you, what you do every day may seem simple and basic and easy to others, let me share with you how that fits into the big picture of our organization and of our vision and our mission. And that without you, we wouldn't able, be able to do this work. So I speak a lot to that on how do you create this engagement, loyalty from employees who really are either unskilled or just semi-skilled and how do you hire people solely for their work ethic? Because I can teach somebody to drive a fork. I can teach somebody how to pour concrete, but it's hard to teach somebody to be on time every day, bring a 
a positive um, communication style to the workplace. And there are ways to do that. And they don't differ much from people who will make a million dollars a year in the job. Yeah, I think you and I both are familiar because we mentioned it. Richard Branson's quote, which I'm going to read off my phone because I say it wrong. But Richard Branson, uh, Virgin Airways and all that. Uh, clients do not come first. Your employees come first. If you take care of your employees, they will take care of the clients. Absolutely. And, and that's I think what he doesn't say in there, and they will take care of you, <laughs> meaning the boss, because Absolutely. they're taking care of the company because they want to. They want to keep employees. They and 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 you mentioned earlier, like, how do you work with someone who maybe he's, he's owned his company. And I'll tell you a true story of a very successful family that in a very, very rural part of Oklahoma, grandpa took his welding skills in the barn and created a dynasty almost. He was able to start creating specialized types of pipes for the oil and gas industry and grew this company from him just kind of dabbling in the barn welding to employing over 25 welders. He then had his son running the company and his grandson who was in his twenties was very up and coming. And I got the call as I do a lot from companies like this saying, I hear that you fix company Sexter and that you work primarily with manufacturers. Um, we need your help because I've got a turnover rate at 200%. We need your help right now. This is like, you know, code red, we're bleeding out, get here ASAP. And I already know, without even having to know a whole lot about the company, what the problem is. And when I get there, it turns out, as I suspected, that my problem is my client. That grandpa, apparently, again, he was in the army. He raised his family with kind of that old school iron fist, do what I tell you to do, boy, or, or you're going to get a whooping. And because he nor his son or his grandson ever really worked anywhere else except for this company, they've never seen modern leadership style. And so they all essentially followed his lead and that's how they led. So it was difficult to try and tell, you know, this man who essentially he was garnering around 13 million a year in gross revenues that here I come, this blonde chick from Jersey named Sexter trying to tell him he's the problem. And then to pay me to help him. <laughs> and, well, I'm um, interested. How did how did they them as an example? But in general, how did people receive that? You know, I built this. I've done it. I've been successful. I've exactly been doing right, it for years. You old whippersnapper. Well, I'm uh, doing. Must be doing something right. I'm yeah, making thirteen well, million dollars, and I'm like, dude, you should be making twenty six. Right. I and so it. Everyone's different, and part of my training has been about communication styles and understanding that not everybody thinks the same. And a lot of it is ego. They, they're very proud and they should be of their American success story. And it's telling them similar to what I've just shared with you and your listeners, that the pendulum has swung away from that model of command and demand, that a paycheck is no longer enough appreciation and recognition, that having a job, that it really is an employee-driven market. And welders, particularly welders, <laughs> are some of the hardest to find people that everywhere I go, no matter where I go in America, that every company that uses welders is always recruiting for them, always looking for them. 
welders are very informed now that they know that they're platinum collar workers and they will not stay in an environment that is anything other than supportive and committed to core values and pays well. Yeah. So I, I think for a lot of contractors, there is a, um, a common saying of hiring a heartbeat and they will look for maybe a friend or a friend of a friend, just kind of reach out into their network to find, especially as they're getting started uh, to find somebody or even looking at a good employee and just asking their friend to come if they have any friends that are willing to come in and interview and then just hiring them right off the spot. One, why is that extremely bad and what are the, the costs of that? But two, how can we avoid that? And what, what you know, you've talked about this all access pass. Maybe we'll get into that in a second. Why, why is this a bad thing if they're just hiring a heartbeat? What are the, the real costs of that? It's not always bad because in many ways they're seeking out what I've already told you is kind of the holy grail to all this, which is a trusting relationship. Yeah. They want, they know without even being able to articulate it from an intellectual standpoint that that is really, I want to be able to trust somebody. So it's, I think in many ways it's very well intentioned that if trust is the most important aspect here, let me just go and talk to a friend or even a family member because I already have this relationship of trust with them. Where it sometimes can go awry and why I do still recommend that they separate their relationship, that yes, you may be my brother-in-law or even my spouse or even my child, but when we get on the field that we can use a sports metaphor here, that when we're home and we are in our personal relationships, that's one thing. But when we go and to work, even if that's just across the kitchen, through the den and into your home-based office, that relationship moves into a business relationship where we have common goals, performance standards, and expectations that we have in writing. And we're going to measure that with each other. That's where I find most people don't take that extra added step to literally separate the personal relationship from the professional relationship. And so I would really recognize, encourage people to sit down and actually have some expectations similar to say a more corporate or much larger company that has performance standards or codes of conduct and anticipate the tensions, anticipate the conflict. Uh, and I'm real big on saying going toward it, don't ignore it going toward that. And what are we going to do when we disagree for the first time? How are we going to not suddenly drop back into that personal relationship style of communication? What, what should we pull out? And I like the sports metaphor here because there's a playbook and a rule book and it never changes. Um, so the rules are this when we're at work and these are the rules when we're you know, in our personal relationship. And in the event this happens, we have a playbook and that's what we're going to, that's the play we're going to call. Can can you give us an example, maybe of one or two kind of what the rules sound like, like don't use my first name or is it, uh, (laughs) I mean, seriously, what's simpler than that? I find that because of the personal relationship, let me just bring this up that you may be a hard driven Gen Xer who is, a communication style that values results and getting things done and very action oriented. But yet your niece who you've hired maybe in her early twenties 
we just graduated from college and her communication style is much more introverted and she's much more focused on the relationship and how things feel. And if you don't understand how that all works there, you already set yourself up for potential conflict there. But a rule that could go down in the rule book is in the event that you and that we have a significant difference of opinion, particularly on a topic related to customer service, that we are going to sit down and determine best case next moves based on um, client experience, the, the ability to keep clients. It's not going to be about our own feelings on things. We're going to sit down and create a proactive approach to ensuring this doesn't happen again and not take it personally. So it's similar to any other. It's just taking a play from what I think of as professional sports and also much larger companies that I find that people are able to hold their tongue with people, with their coworkers, but they come home and they can, they feel really comfortable yelling and screaming and becoming inappropriate with people they love. But in the workplace, they are actually able to control those behaviors. And I've often said, treat your, not only treat your employees as your number one customer, but treat your family as the number one customer. Right. If you wouldn't say it to a client or customer, don't say it to your spouse or your kids. Um, we live that in our, my home. Um, our rules here are pretty strict. Um, we, and our number one rule, our core value in essence is respect. Um, I can be mad as well get out at my son or my husband or a friend, but I think of them as, as someone I dearly treasure and I don't, I would never say or do things to them that I wouldn't say to a paying client or an employee inside of my company. Hmm. So it does become this internalized approach. And that's when you start looking at a lot of servant leaders or servant mentors who what? are no longer boss holes. How do they get there? How do they move yeah. away from Maybe, maybe give us an example of like a, maybe someone, you know, that's a great servant leader and what, you don't have to say their name or anything, but tell us like some attributes they have and what they act like and how they run their company. Well, we here at my firm benchmark a lot on the great place to work institutes work. They are the entity that does all of the surveying for fortune magazines, top 100 best companies to work for. Cool. And what I do each year is I eagerly wait the arrival of the new winners of which we're all familiar with. And they started doing that back in the uh, early nineties. And at the time they only looked at companies that had a thousand employees or more. And that's the one most of us are most familiar with. And that's usually the one that's on the cover of the magazine. But in, I think it was around 2007 or eight, they began to actually have separate categories for medium-sized companies and smaller companies. So now you can go and actually find a company that maybe looks a lot like yours and learn about how did they get on that winner's list. Hmm. But the one thing that is common with every single one of those winners is trust. They actually do go in and measure trust in these companies. And that is in essence how they award uh, this incredibly revered designation as being a winner of a great place to work. So as far as finding leaders as role models, there's many of them. But what I would say is go and look at the leaders that are just like you and I embedded inside of these companies. Those are the ones who we can benchmark on. And when you start, if you were to pull them into a group, 
or say, I want to, I want to look at mid-level managers inside of every manufacturing company that won that award for this year. And I want to put them in a room and I want to find out what's common amongst all of them. Yeah. I can share with you without any doubt at all that what's common amongst all of those leaders are that they recognize that they exist solely to extract peak performance from those employees Mm. and that they work for them, not the other way around. So my job is to get to know you as an individual, understand what your value system is, understand what motivates you, what demotivates you, what upsets you, and create a communication dynamic with you that builds trust first and foremost, and then extracts peak performance. So it really is not so much looking for the greatest leaders. And because we can all, I find some (laughs) of the greatest leaders I've, I talk about are really in sports, you know, look at John. I was just going to say that, you know, I, I, I coach soccer in the Mm -hmm. Springs. Um, and you really do have to know, I've got 45 kids in the program this year. How old? Uh, All high school. All high school. Oh, wow. North 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 high school. You, you completely are going to understand what I'm talking about. Thankfully. I mean, you literally have to, when you're running a drill and you're trying to get a point across to a specific player, it has to be, you have to understand their personality, how they receive, you know, at some kids I may like question them and, you know, not belittle them, but be very stern with them. And then with some of them, I have, I may have to like be very calm and almost encourage them. Like, Hey, that's right. You'll get it next time type mentality. Uh, just because they are going to receive everything differently. Um, exactly. And I, I think you've, you've mentioned these incredible leaders and um, they're in these wonderful companies and they win awards for it. And I, I, I'm just thinking of the contractors that are, you know, maybe 10 employees, if that. Uh, <laughs> they, they are so overwhelmed and so stressed out in their day-to-day job dealing with client issues, dealing with the accounting, dealing with their team, uh, dealing with new sales, all this different stuff, and trying to be that person, that great leader is so difficult. And so on a practical level for someone that is probably over capacity, what are some ways that we can you know, actually be that good leader that understands each individual on our team and asks the right questions and is invested properly and getting peak performance out of people, how can we do that? Again, I say it starts way back in the beginning. Be careful who you hire, just like you're careful who you marry. Right. And choose the right one from the beginning. You'll avoid a lot of mm. reactive actions you have to engage in to try and make it right. Yeah. And allow the other person to interview you back. Again, my favorite thing in interviewing, and I'm not an HR professional, I'm not a credentialed HR professional, I'm an organizational development consultant, but I work very closely and we have um, very credentialed HR people that work for our firm that really do your due diligence up front, making sure Mm -hmm. you've got that right person to do the job and then let them try before you buy. I'm a big advocate even of sending them back to a staffing agency to come back to you through payrolling where they're getting paid, but they're mm-hmm. not formally hired yet to kind of try before you buy kind of concept. Right. And then once you do hire them and they do start is making sure just like in sports, like in soccer, yeah. with you and your, your players get to know them as individuals because what motivates one may not motivate the other. I also like again, the metaphor of parent, parent relationship is each of your kids is motivated differently and how you approach them is different 
And where old school leadership would just kind of use a singular broad brushstroke and how they mm-hmm. managed or led, they tra- treated everyone the same. That can't work anymore. Uh, you want to coach and advocate for your employees to their last personal best, similar to what you yeah. just said, Khalil. Mm-hmm. That when you, if you were to go to the, a practice of some of the greatest coaches and watch just how they coach their players, mm-hmm. you're going to see that coach is is keenly aware of how every single one of those individual players are performing that day. And then they'll pull one of them off the field. Hey, you know, um, Jose, come, come here. You're doing something wrong. You're leading with the left foot instead of the right foot. And Jose may even argue, say, no coach, I'm not say, well, listen, um, I have you on my iPad. Um, it seems to me, you know, now I want you to get out there and let me watch, let me see you leave with the right foot. And as soon as he leaves with the right foot, the coach is saying, good job, Jose, you got it. Right. Um, so it's, it's really understanding the, that employee. And I believe in what I call the stay interview, um, not the exit interview that from day one, that you can now ask the questions you couldn't ask in the interview a little bit more about their personal life. Do you have children? What do you do for fun? Mm. Um, and, wow. and, and get hey, to know them a, as people. Major bullet point. Uh, from an HR standpoint, you can ask those things now that they work for you? Oh, yeah. Oh. You just can't ask it in the interview. Yeah. Hey, I'd like to do my stay interview with you or my or welcome interview. I'll do my stay interview with you in, in a few months just to make sure that you're still engaged, that you're we're, that you're excited about coming to work every day. I have. That's a great oh, yeah. Actually, matter of fact, never, there's, um, never even heard of that before. Lots of lists. So I want to know what your favorite food is. I want to know what you do for fun, because when we start getting into recognition and I've written several books on the topic of non-monetary forms of recognition as a means to increase engagement and retention in manufacturing. If, if I think you love chocolate and it turns out you're allergic to it, <laughs> right. you know, I, I'm, I'm really against the, the stack of Walmart cards in, in a supervisor's mm-hmm. desk drawer for on the spot recognition. I know the intentions were good when that concept was created. It's not personal. No, I mean, what did Walmart, what do we, what do we buy at Walmart? Ketchup and diapers. I mean, there's no lasting value to the fact that your boss gave you a gift card to Walmart. Go, if the guy loves fishing, go to Bass Pro and get him a gift card. You can do it online even for 20 bucks. And so you personalize that and bring him up in front of the, and even if you are a solopreneur, you work from home or you have five employees or left, these rules still apply. Yeah. I think a practical way, and I, I think for, for contractors that are smaller, um, a way of actually, you know, you, you do some interviews and then you got those three to four candidates, put them on a tri- on a trial job with you. Go and do a project where you're at a house for a day or you, you know, you're going to be there for a couple of days or you're on a building on a job site and keep them there for a couple of days and then do another interview after that and really monitor them, really see how they're performing um, how they interact with the team members, how they interact with other subs, whatever it is. Um, and then you'll have a feeling of who's going to fit, who's not going to fit. Um, and even have a checklist there of what you're looking for in them, maybe some of the values that you want them to exhibit, uh, how they communicate, how they their cleanliness on the job site maybe, um, how efficient they are, how many breaks they take, uh, if they're smiling and positive, those kinds of things. And keep that along with you as you're going through that trial job. So that after that, then you can go on and um, have another interview and, and make your selections from there. Um, something that we do, and we are not contractors, uh, we're a marketing agency, but we actually have 
a trial job as part of the interview process. And then we select one or two people to go on a 30-day trial period where they actually are given a company email that all access pass essentially, where they're in every team meeting, all those different things. And after 30 days, we have a, you know, hey, how was it? Did you did you like it? And then we're also to say, hey, this is what we felt like. Um, we've only done that twice so far. And I'll tell you, it's, it's worked extremely well. And um, I'm very happy with the quality of the talent that we got, but I'm also happy with the relationships that we have inside of our team right now with those employees. It feels like it's a lot stronger than someone just kind of coming on and right after one interview or, you know, hiring that heartbeat essentially. So, uh, you know, Christine, we're still in the find of the fine train keep. We've got some really good stuff coming, the motivators and demotivators and so on. But <laughs> at the, so building trust, uh, getting to know one another, all of these things you, you had talked about values. We have a, I think we recorded an episode hiring for attitude or hiring for values. A lot of people can just kind of natural. Some people can just naturally do that. Other people, well, I'm just going to say most of the 320 clients I have put out an ad. It's very sterile. They come in to meet it. And then, well, I had a good feeling about this guy or that lady, or I had a bad feeling. Can they learn to hire for the right values and what are the steps? I presume knowing what your values are is one step where they're written down and you really think about it. But can you learn to do that and, and get good at it? Let me just make one point because I would be so remiss if I didn't jump on this. Don't trust your gut. I've met so many people that have had epic fails in hiring because they trust their gut. The closer you can get to hiring with a scientific approach that is proven, your ability to be more successful in, in hiring that right match goes up exponentially. And particularly for contractors in smaller companies, you can't afford an epic fail and hire. Um, if you only have two employees or three or four, if you really make an epic failure in hiring, that one bad apple spoils the, the few other people you have there. It can really hurt your culture and it can be hard to recover from that. So I would encourage contractors, small employers, to be even more careful about this. To, hire, to make one bad hire in a company of 500, it's much more watered down than it would be if I'm inviting this person to work from home and I've got to trust that they've got the discipline to do that or to be coming into my home office every day, et cetera, et cetera. So it definitely applies. Now, let's assume that we're, we're working with or consulting with, and I'm talking to the, your listeners who are contractors who have, say, 10 or less employees that, yes, recognize from yourself what's important. And we've kind of danced around it, but we're all different and we all have different communication styles. And even the generations have different values. So one of the, the missteps with millennials that boomers and Xers had was to think that millennials value the same things we did. Um, boomers, it was about you know, money and security and same thing with extras to some extent. Well, millennials didn't value that. Millennials valued experiences and creating a, a workplace where they can come to work, feel valued. But then really what was more important to them was what they did outside of work and whether if it was even their gaming or their church or something that we didn't relate to, we thought that they were lazy when they weren't. They just have different sets of values. So understanding person by person whether or not this person that you're going to hire uh, doesn't always have to mirror 
you as a personality, because we can all say that if, you know, we hire somebody just like us, it actually could potentially be even more conflict, but look for someone who has the same value system. So in essence, if you really want this person, for example, to be prompt every day, that it's really important to you that this person show up every day at exactly eight o'clock, not 806, not 815, or suddenly be having a, a trend or starting to have a behavior where they're showing up late every single day for, you know, 15, 16 days in a row. Know that that, that, that is something in you that you've got to recognize and talk that with through with the candidate. Now, the candidate may say, well, I'd rather you be judging me on the results. I'd rather you be measuring me not so much when I'm working. If I want to work at 2 a.m. and not come in until 10 a.m., is that okay with you? If you find that you have a deep-seated core value that it's not, then say it's not. Now, I would want to talk to somebody a little bit about that, depending upon what, you know, if they're hiring an accountant or somebody who can do their work at 2 a.m., what do you care as long as the results are there? So... With that in mind, it, this goes to your clients, Martin, who maybe you're writing this dry ad. Um, it's a little worthy of a whole other podcast on this, but um, look for somebody who can drive the results. The days where you as an employer would say, you must have this, you must have this education, you must have this amount of years experience, you must be able to do this. Um, are defunct and you are not going to attract modern employees of all generations with an ad like that because it's it's like white bread toast <laughs> dry uh, what you want to do is really say to somebody um, not about a job description I want here's the results I need uh, that you can develop uh, you can bring us 10 new clients per quarter that are part of our target market that will stay with us at least a year and do you have experiences in doing that and can you prove it um, and everything else about the candidate i would say to some extent um, is encroaching upon some bias that i think we should be letting go of for example i have a client who was hiring somebody for a quality manager a qaqc person quality assurance quality control and the company had always demanded that all of their hires all of their hires in um, in administration had to have at least a bachelor's degree. And yet we found him this person who could prove that he had driven results similar to the, in his prior employer as what my client was asking for, but he didn't have the degree. I, we were able to convince this client, what does it matter? And they let go of that and put it on my shoulders and said, Sexter, if, if this doesn't work out, we're going to blame you. I said, do it. I said, I have full faith. Turned out to be one of the greatest employees this employer ever had. He did go on and got his degree at the expense of that employer with their tuition reimbursement. Yeah, so hire for values, hire for results. That that too much, but uh, that college degree thing is one of my pet peeves. Work with a lot of contractors and yeah. trades and they can make good money and they don't have a degree. And I'll hear people say, it always comes out after we've been coaching a while, when they, when they get to know me and we're friends and they try, they trust, well, I don't have a college degree. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, it, I think a lot of employers, and maybe you can correct me, use that as kind of a filter that we'll get rid of the dregs and we'll just take people who have at least shown they could get through college. Well, I don't want to cash dispersions. I mean, I have a college degree and it served me well. Frankly, I'm living my dream career based on what I studied. But 
Um, in, in, and there's definitely going to be roles where that's important. Same thing with career technology. When you, if you're hiring somebody who's going to be a welder or a mechanic or a machinist or a very skilled vocational um, person, yeah, I think that is important that they have that experience. But there are times where it really, if the person can drive the results, really it shouldn't be something that you should exclude somebody when they have the same core values. They can get you the results and the relationship will work. And, and I'm actually excited to see that we're in a time now, particularly COVID. One of the things that came out of this was everybody had to work from home and become more disciplined. And could you drive results on your own? Could you be self-motivated to hit the goals, even though you weren't surrounded by a team and a supervisor who was being an advocate or a coach for your end results? that people really have done phenomenally well. And, and I know you've mentioned this, Martin, and I do too. I've got clients that their production's through the roof because of COVID. They're blown away at what was possible and what has happened here. That it wasn't at all like what they all feared when, you know, maybe the IT department or the accounting department was saying, hey, can we work from home once in a while because we can still get our results done. So again, it goes back to, and particularly for small business owners, particularly for contractors who are, working in smaller, own smaller companies is do your due diligence, hire for core values and hire for ability to build trust with you uh, and ability to drive results. And that's easily found discerned. It's not that hard to determine that um, in an interview and then doing the job shadowing has been my favorite as we've all agreed to. Um, you know, people can fake their way through an interview. They can, even fake their way through the first 30 days at work. But that 31st day, you're pretty much going to start seeing the real person. Right. So what do you do? And then we'll get to train or to keep, uh, motivate and keep. But what do you do when you get a bad one and you have to let them go? What's your philosophy on, I mean, do you just go to the ends of the world to try to uh, rejuvenate? Well, not, well, I don't know what the right word is, but I mean, to correct their behaviors, to change their values, uh, or do you just, there's a day, you know, and you cut bait and say, this isn't working. I'm talking about firing. If anybody, I wants to us on that. And, and let me just admit this. And I think we all have, we've all had epic fails. I'm an expert in this field and I have had epic fails. And what you have to do with that is learn up from it and put in place a new play in the playbook that says moving forward, here's something I'm going to do that I didn't do or do more of something I should have done more of to have learned about this person, or maybe I failed to share with them. So there's a, a lot to be learned, but the better you, the more the time goes on and that people can begin to identify what are the core values here. And when you look at these fortune 100 companies, they're very good at identifying right fit talent they're very, very good at it. And they have a process that they put candidates through that proves that they're right fit talent. So my first statement is always do your proactive due diligence up front and you'll avoid and begin to reduce the number of terminations that you have to engage in and avoid that, you know, if you have a heartbeat, you're hired mentality out of desperation. So when the but time let's comes assume to... that that's happened, as oh, you're saying, yeah. Martin, that we've, we have hired someone and it's become pretty obvious that it's not working. 
Um, or maybe over time, and I see this quite a bit now where a great employee has gone toxic and you've got to figure out, can I pull this person back from the dark side? Or if they're a new hire, what do I do about this? Well, first I'm going to say this, and this is kind of my um, CYA. I am not a credentialed HR person, and there are laws that are constantly changing. And check with the laws in your state as far as making sure that if you are thinking about letting someone go, that you follow all of the laws and regulations within your state um, before you go about doing this. But in essence, let's assume that we're certainly being uh, law abiding and all this, and it's more about the next difficult conversation you're going to have. Um, one is I would say, don't wait, uh, create that relationship of trust. So anytime that you're getting a sense that the employee isn't bringing their A game or just something's off and it's been a few days, I allow my employees to, to be off their A game for maybe a few days, or maybe they're just their demeanor. There's certain behavior that suddenly has changed and it's not for the good. I'll let it go for about two days. Uh, because it could be something that has nothing to do with you or work. Maybe their dog died and they're not someone who shares that. But on that third day, I will say, hey, I've noticed that you you just don't have that sparkle in your eye. I'm sensing that something isn't right or more tangible. Um, I've noticed for the last three weeks, you have missed our recurring deadline to have the production report to me on Fridays at two. You've done so well with it up till now. And I've noticed the last three times I've had to follow up with you what's going on. Um, so having the dialogue very soon, don't wait. Most em employers hate these kind of conversations because they see their potential for conflict or they're afraid they'll mess it up. They just, or they don't want to deal with it. Um, they just hope it goes away. Don't remember your employee is your number one customer. My job is essentially to get, give create an environment where you give me your best every day and so I want to build trust. So as soon as I send something's off, I'm going to be very kind about it. I'm not going to suddenly, you know, rush in there and say, what the hell? This sucks. No, I'm, you know, I have respect for this person. And I've noticed magic words of leadership. I've noticed. And then I asked the question, can you share more with me about that? And as soon as that question mark comes out of your gorgeous face, shut up and listen. And even if there's a pregnant pause that's awkward, let it sit there. And now you can get one or two things. Let's go back to the one who's underperforming by being missing deadlines, because that's a real concern. That's a performance issue. I, it's my job as a coach. You're not giving me your A game on the field. I have to call you out on it. I'm coaching to your last personal best. Your last personal best was you never missed this deadline. Now you are three times in a row. And I just shut up. Hey, I've noticed. You know, what's, what's going on? And I don't assume anything, and it's very soft. And I just listen. And if I, you know, you could hear a whole bunch of things. Somebody may say, well, oh, come on, you're my sister-in-law. Why are you getting all corporate-y and managerial with me? As you remember, when I hired, when we started this business relationship, we would call each other out on things that weren't up to our expectations. And I'm just, I'm not assuming anything. I just want to know, is everything okay? And you could hear a couple of things. The person would say, you know, this isn't working out. And for me, when I hear that from an employee, I'm relieved. I want to know, I, you know, I want to build this trust. I want you to tell me, or you hear something like, you know what? 
I've decided I'm working out every Thursday, you know, Friday mornings and I'm exhausted and I've just been forgetting. Well, what can I do to help you? Remember, I'm coaching and advocating. What is it you need from me to not miss the, to not miss the deadline again? And then there's that question mark. I shut up. So let's assume, Martin, that you've got a really tough case that somebody didn't hire the right person or they, they didn't, they basically hired the person without really doing a lot of due diligence and it's starting to even bleed over into the personal relationship if there is one. Um, that's a very difficult situation. And um, I have found that if you have been avoiding that conversation and now it's starting to eat you up and you're getting mad and you're coming home and you're complaining to somebody else about you know, this person who's also a family member that now works for you and you're starting to get yourself, it's starting to bleed over into your personal life and your other relationships. That's an indicator. It's time to have that conversation. Don't avoid that conversation. Say, Hey, I, I wouldn't barge in the room and say, this isn't working out. I know that you're related to me, but today's your last day. No, I mean, there's a really good chance you're the problem. So I'm saying just keep the communication lines open, create a separate expectations between personal and professional, have that professional expectations in writing um, and encourage those people to come to you when even you have, as their boss has done something wrong. Part of this relationship of trust and servant leadership, servant mentorship is more my word for it, um, is that I tell employees, whether they're related to me or not, if I do something that pisses you off, if I do something that just it in any way impedes your peak performance, you have to come tell me. You must tell me. My job is to remove barriers, not be the source of them. And I thank them. So I've had, you know, I'm a very strong personality. Um, I, I'm a recovering boss hole myself. <laughs> I, and what I've learned is I have given everybody in my life permission. If I do something that creates a negative response in you, don't wait. I want you to come to me immediately. And when they do, Martin, I thank them immediately. Thank you so much. You do not know how much I value your candor, your trust. And I know that that was hard for you. But let's talk this through. I want to know what it, what you, you would want me to do. You know, one of the uh, listening to you, this, this all makes great sense. I, I wrote an article one time and it's about when, when you know it's time for them to go. And I've had, I've caught people stealing from me several times. And I said, I love it when somebody steals from me. In my article, his name was Tommy, came in, did you steal that gas? Yeah, I did. And I said, you're out of here. No doubt. No, you know, it was great. Every other termination or termination type event has been just terribly, terribly difficult. But Why? Well, <laughs> I think it's because it feels subjective. I think, you know, when, it, when they steal, it's objective. Hey, you did this, you crossed well, the line. See we, yeah, absolutely. And then whenever it's, ah, they're, they've got their a family. They, I mean, what I hear, and I recognize it because I've done it myself, but what I hear all the time from clients when we're up against a way underperforming, maybe they can't do it even type employee is, well, have I given them enough time? Have I given them a chance? Did I make my expectation clear? Do they have all the tools they need? And which are all good questions. And they need to answer those questions. But I say, you've given them all those things. And have they ever come back toward you saying, 
hey, I need some help with this, or hey, I don't understand how that's done, or hey, this wasn't clear. It's a two-way street, because we've still, even from you so far in this conversation, we still haven't get to the point where, okay, I've talked, I've had the conversation, I've asked you what was wrong, I've given the pregnant pause and listened to you, but you're not doing it. There's a point where you got to fire somebody, and just, I don't have any clients who enjoy that. And it, it, it even goes beyond just operations. Larry Hughes is a business broker and sold over 700 businesses we have an episode on. When he talks about preparing your business for sale, which is typically a three-year process, start getting your profits up. He said, one of the main things that's always there are these employees that have been with me since the beginning. They add no, now not, not human, but financial value to the company. They're dead weight. And now you got a decision. I got to get rid of them because that'll increase the value of my company. And Larry just says that's uh, not every company, but that's just darn near ubiquitous. And so I don't know. What are your thoughts? I mean, people don't want to hire those people. They got a family. I, they were loyal back when we, they've been with me forever. I really like seeing their face. They're good at answering the telephone. But, and that goes, um, Martin, it's interesting how- no matter what topic I speak on, there. anytime I talk about the toxic employee, everybody knows what that is. It's almost like the word itself is representative. And this is a toxic employee from my definition is somebody who not only are they unengaged and disengaged, but they, they are now openly working against the organization. And it's well known that pe- people uh, avoid them, that there's a lot of unresolved anger and People ask, can you bring them back from the dark side? Can they be salvaged? And one of the things I find is, interestingly enough, to what you just mentioned, that, well, we haven't fired him because uh, he's been with us for 22 years, and I know his kids, and I know he's the only, he's the primary breadwinner. If I let him go, it's going to cause, you know, the family to be in the poorhouse. And ironically, I'll ask, I'll say, well, was he ever at one time a great employee? He says, yes, he was one of the best. I have find that there's this relationship that toxic employees that have been tolerated, it's not their fault, it's yours. Because you've tolerated them. In many ways, they're almost like extortionists. They're allowing, they're wanting to see how far can they push their bad behavior before you do something. And they know you won't fire them. They're oftentimes were great employees, rock stars, superstars, the best. Um, and what I find oftentimes too, is they're often sole sources of knowledge. That's another reason they don't get fired. They're the only guy in a company who knows how to do X. And if we fire him, then who's going to do this? Right. And he refuses to train anybody. We should do a whole whole podcast on that subject. Yeah. I would recommend that. Um, But when you go and you talk to the toxic employee, so I'll say, okay, you know, toxic employee, what happened here? Again, question mark. And what you find is you're going to have this cathartic two-hour conversation of how trust was had and broken and never fixed. And then fire his ass, right? And then, no. And then because he essentially knows that, oh, they're not going to fire me. I've been here 22 years. I know where all the dead bodies are buried. Or I know, I'm the only one who knows how to do X. Um or if sometimes, in, again, in smaller companies, so for your contractors, they're afraid because they don't know the laws and they don't want to get sued. So they don't want to do it wrong. 
So they're, they're, they're hesitant. My advice to people is one is, is always be proactive. Don't get yourself in that position. Have an open dialogue with people that are working in your company, whether they're related to you or not, whether there's one employee or a thousand and one. Your job as an owner, leader, manager, role model, coach, and advocate is to do this every single day. Leadership is not a once a quarter or once a year behavior. It is a daily, hourly role. It is a responsibility to create a culture where employees excel and that you understand your job is to treat them as your number one customer through mentorship and advocacy and role modelism. And when it, something isn't right, you need to act even quicker than when it, somebody deserves recognition or an award, which has to be done. I think that statement is the one that gets a big aha moment from a lot of our clients and audiences that, you know, it's, it's like parenting. You don't just parent once a week or once a month or ignore a child who is becoming destructive or inappropriate. You stop that as soon as you can. And we, and, and the way that we parent now is a lot like the way we coach. I coached my kid. Um, this is my personal belief, but I treated my son um, like he worked for my professional team and I coached him to do the right things. Yeah, he made mistakes. So did I. I made mistakes all the time. I even had to apologize to him on occasion. But it was something where um, it was always respectful and it was always done in real time. Um, yes, I understand that a lot of managers or small employee, employers you know, the, the big fear I get is I don't know how to farm. I don't know I'm suing me for wrongful termination or suing me. Um, and then everything I've worked so hard for, I have to pay to a lawyer to defend this lawsuit, even if I win. You know, when I listen to you, you talk, these things come naturally to a lot of people and a lot of people, they don't. And I think <laughs> I'm one of them. I like people and I think some people like me, but I'm in my own head all the time. I'm thinking about spreadsheet. I mean, it, I almost have to have a checklist of go be kind, go catch somebody doing something right and praise them. I I almost, I mean, I don't automatically buy Christmas cards and birthday cards and I really have to work to buy considerate gifts for my family, which, you know, which is the real problem with the Walmart gift card is had no thought behind it. Right. Now I, I haven't done that with my wife, but it's almost like a checklist. And so what pops into my mind, and then I think we need to move on to motivators and demotivators, but what about regular employee reviews? Everybody knows about that. A vanishingly small percentage of my clients do it. What do you think? Are they, are, are they an important part of it? Uh, does it depend entirely on the quality of the review, the content of the review? What are your thoughts? What I'm seeing that is quickly becoming adopted by world-class award-winning companies regarding performance reviews is the following. The day where the annual performance review was really the only feedback that an employee got and they were, and the employee very well could be surprised by what was in it is dead. If you're doing that in your company or you think it, you know, one day a year, and everybody dreads it. The manager hates writing the thing. The employee hates getting the thing. Um, 
And, and, and a lot of times the employee's shocked at what their manager is saying. It's the first time they're hearing that they're underperforming in some area or even over, doing great in another. There hasn't been any kind of feedback is dead. Yeah. I'm even here to tell you that based on my information, that it, it actually can be one of the worst things you can do in a modern sure. company. It could set you up for a lawsuit in ways you haven't even thought about. Hmm. What, what is now becoming kind of the world-class or best practices in employee performance reviews is minimum of quarterly. Mm. It's much more casual and it has an element of 360 in it. So the employee has to prepare for their quarterly. And I, I call it the mentoring sessions and the employee has to prepare and the manager has to prepare not only on themselves, but each other. It tends to be very casual and it says, here's what I perceive that you're doing well. And you already, you're not surprised because I coach you every minute of every hour of every day. It's an ongoing communication relationship to build trust. And I'd like to know from you, what is it I'm not doing well or what you would like me to change or what am I doing well as your manager? So it's this element of 360 It because the relationship isn't any no longer about a top-down power play that you do what I tell you to do. Now it's more like, how is this working for us? Um, and we've got several clients that have adopted this and it has been absolutely incredibly successful. Yeah. The, uh, the way that I handle it, and I, I know it's harder for contractors than it is for me just because they're not in an office every day. You know, they're out on job sites. They've got multiple job sites. They can't coach in two different places uh, at all times. But uh, we do quarterly reviews. And the way that we do it is I have a Google form that evalu- they self-evaluate themselves. Then they answer some basic questions. Uh, so there's like a rating scale of themselves. And they actually rate not only their performance, but they're, they're rated, rating themselves on how they um, lived out the values of our culture, uh, the core values. Then they answer some questions about like best things from the past quarter, worst things, what we can improve, those kinds of questions. And then they actually rate our, our company uh, on the same things. How did we do at the values? How did we do at um, you know providing good benefits and setting expectations, all those different things. And then I also will go through that, uh, that evaluation form for them. And then we'll meet and we'll just go through that form. And that's kind of our rubric for the meeting. Uh, for your listeners, is that something that they can access? You mentioned it. It's a Google form. Sure, yeah. I'll throw it, I'll throw it in the show notes. Uh, I won't Ethan will throw it in the show notes. Um, Hey, and Ethan, make how is Khalil doing anyway? <laughs> He's uh, he's, I he's got muted. thumbs up. He's, he's silent. Muted. He was silent. Yeah. It, it makes sense if you were to if you really in, understand and buy into this concept that my job as an owner, leader, or contractor, if I if I employ you and you're my number one customer, just like yeah, every retailer, every company is always surveying their customers for feedback. How did we do? How are we doing for you? Will you continue to do business with us? It's that same concept in saying, how are our benefits? How, how do you like yeah. working here? What could we do better for you? It, mm-hmm. it really is a very parallel dynamic that once you understand that I'm to treat my employees 
like my number one client so that they in turn can truly treat my clients the same way. It makes mm -hmm. sense. And yeah. so why wouldn't we be frequently checking in? How are we doing? How are you doing? How yeah. can we get better well, at this? Well, there then is, what we also do that, that, that I'm trying, because I can just see people in my mind is it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of business owners, it, yeah. some it does. And Khalil actually, I know his organization pretty well. That's more important than anything else. Sure. It, it is part of who Khalil is. And so I'm trying to find a way that we could kind of get it on the calendar and start thinking about it. Uh, yeah. So that there's intentional feedback. What, what I really took from what you said was the 360 component which of course yeah. uh, people aren't familiar with that term. I think it's kind of obvious, but it goes both ways, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The, the environment, I'm talking about you, you're talking about me. It's open dialogue. It builds that trust. Yeah. Martin, I think if you're in, if you adhere to this and you, again, you're very due diligent and proactive about hiring right fit talent, and then you engage in creating a trusting two-way relationship, and then you formally um, put on a calendar, at least quarterly opportunities for you to have open dialogue with each other regarding performance and expectations, you, you are, you are going to avoid many of those very difficult moments where you have to let someone go. Yeah. Um, oftentimes if there is a mismatch, both people know it mm -hmm. and it, and it's very amicable. And I would um, recommend and, and moving forward toward retent, talk more about retention is um, make sure that they are ambassadors of your organization, not an outcast. You know, yeah. the days where you would, you know, march down the hall with an empty box and security behind you and say, pack it up, you're fired. And then they're fired out, they're followed out the door by the security guy until they get to their car. And then they're basically an outcast or, or dead. Uh, the strategy now is to make sure that um, if somebody is no, isn't with your company, whether that it's voluntary or involuntary, that uh, they still remain advocates for you and your company, that they mm -hmm. they themselves recognize this wasn't a good match and nobody was wrong. And um, I still have good feelings about this employer or I still really have good feelings about this candidate. We just weren't the right yeah. match at the right time. Um, yeah, I, I think another aspect of it, you and you've mentioned this several times, Christine, but uh, it's it's more than just the quarterly reviews, just like it, an annual review isn't suffice if you're just meeting once a year to have a conversation that is very upfront, honest, and evaluative. Um, quarterly, honestly, in my opinion, isn't enough to actually know how your employees are doing. Um, and so we actually set weekly, and we're kind of moving to bi-weekly, one-on-ones, where I, for 20 to 30 minutes, I have a one-on-one -on -one every Monday with every single employee. And yeah, my Monday is shot. I don't get anything done on Mondays for the business but I do get a lot done with the employees. Um, well, I, I have to applaud you. Um, you, you, you've been very candid that if we're going to put our employees as our number one customer, then taking 20% of your work out to serve and touch base with them, that well, it takes you away from your own duties, but really right. this is your number one duty. And, Absolutely. and it creates a candid and trust building relationship with them yeah. and it will pay you back in dividends for in, in ways you don't even know yet because um, these people, many of them are working from home. So you have to trust that they're self-disciplined mm -hmm. and, and performing. I think you are an 
excellent example of what your audience and listeners should well, be considering. And I don't say it to brag. I say it to kind of give a practical look at what it can be, you know, like, hey, it's it's on the calendar. I know my Mondays. I'm just, I'm with the employees. It makes it easier. And if you're a contractor and you're going from job site, bidding things, worried about, you know, payroll and bookkeeping, all these different things. If you can just set aside one day or even half day to say, hey, I'm going to go on these job sites and talk to people and you know, I'm going to ha- make sure that two of my lunches every week are dedicated to an employee and I'm touching every employee every month. Those are just some practical ways that you can really build relationships with your employees. Know what what gift card to get them, you know, know, know what kind of, uh, you know, coffee they like or whatever it is. Uh, I think it's really important. Um, I actually went to a talk in San Francisco last year, uh, or I guess two years ago now, because we're in 2021. Um about and the whole thing was about uh, it was it was a mark chief marketing officer saying that I know your success based upon if you know how your CFO takes their coffee as a as a marketer as a chief marketing officer I know that you're going to be successful if you know how your chief financial officer takes their coffee and his whole thing was if you're going and getting coffee with your CFO uh, as the CMO you're going to build a relationship with them. And he would go every single week and he would know what the CFO wanted. And because of that, the CFO would give him more budget, be willing to you know, do these crazy ideas for marketing. Same thing applies. You as your as the employer should know how your employees take their coffee. That is, you should, that's a great tagline. And, and, you, and you should be getting coffee with them, taking them to lunch, doing whatever you can so you know what makes them tick what's going to make them feel like they're achieving as much as they can inside of the workplace. And Chloe, so, do you have a um, agenda or a set of series of questions that you ask every Monday? Is there some? A- yes and no. So what I, I always, I, I have three areas that I, I try to cover. Uh, the first one, well, one, I've done the quarterly review with them. So I already know what we're trying to work on. I know what we're trying to accomplish. I know areas that need improvement, uh, areas that have been great, you know, but I'm, I'm always focused on, uh, you know, how is life going? That's one thing that I always cover. Hey, what, what's going on in your world? What's what's happening recently? I ask for goals for the week. Uh, and sometimes we don't get to the goals and that's okay because there's something going on in life, right? And sometimes life is peachy and we spend literally one minute on it and then we're going straight into goals. And then I always say, hey, are there any questions? That's the big one that I always, I want that to be an opportunity where they can ask me anything uh, during that meeting. And Sometimes it's a 10 minute meeting. Sometimes we go over the 30 minutes because there's so much to cover. Um, and I always try to let them know that there's you know time for to reach out to me outside of that 20, 30 minutes that we have on Mondays. Uh, and they, and they try and they do, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the agenda. And I always try to keep in mind what happened on the quarterly review, uh, for things to bring up. So, well, it sounds to me like you are an excellent example of real life story with this Khalil. Yeah. And I want contractors to know that it's difficult and it's hard, but just put it on the calendar. That's what, I mean, have it as a default. Um, I'm, I'm not perfect at it, but put it on the calendar, make it a default that you're always going to. Like I know the second week of each quarter, we're doing quarterly reviews for the last quarter for every employee. And it's just on the calendar. It's just there. I don't have to think about it. And they fill out the form and I show up to the meeting having read the form, you know, and gone through it myself. And how have the employees responded to this? Well, we are in a unique position here. 
And I hope that he's honest here, but Ethan, one of my employees, is on. So, Ethan, what do you think? I think it's a really good process because you can be straight up with them. I can be straight up with Khalil. Um, and it kind of reminds me of our culture, which is probably the thing I take from it the most, is it kind of helps me reflect back on the quarter and how the whole company was with the culture as a whole. So, but I think Khalil does a great job with the quarterly reviews. Um, and it's good at setting uh, goals for the next quarter. So it's a good building block for the next so, quarter. So do you feel valued and treated as if you're the number one customer? I do. I feel very valued after. It kind of reminds me, uh, sometimes fall victim to imposter syndrome, but it's a good reminder that like you deserve to be here and you're valued. So I enjoy that. You know, things have changed. Uh, many, many years ago, I spent one summer working on a workover rig, pulling pumps and stuff on oil wells. And the new guy on a workover rig is called a worm. <laughs> and after he's not the new guy anymore, he moves up to dirt. And wow. Actually, there are people too. That's kind of the machismo. I, I, it's probably all completely changed now because guys in the oil field are running computers and all that. But I, just, I was a little surprised to find out yeah. you're a worm until you're not the newest guy and then you're dirt. So things, <laughs> things have changed a little bit. Pretty bad. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I think things have changed a lot. Uh, and I see it even coaching. I, I mean, it's, it's so funny because I, I've, played at the high school that I coach at. And I also know players that were, you know, seven years, my senior at the same high school. And some of the things that they went through whenever, before I was there, I was just like appalled at how they were treated. But then I tell some of the players now how I was treated whenever I was there and they're appalled. And so when I tell them what happened seven years before me, the look on their face is like, oh my gosh, like you'd be arrested. Like you'd be in jail right now. Yeah. And just things have changed a lot. And um, I think there's no stopping the change, in my opinion. I think it's just a difference in generation, different it's in values and how people were raised. And it is what it is. And I think if you're sitting here saying, you know, damn millennials, I'm never going to hire them. They're, they they can't do things right. We just, they, they never listen, all this stuff. You're only missing out and you're only going to fail. You have to adjust your strategy, your management style, your company to fit what is out there in the market, right? It's it's no different if if your employees are your customers, then it's no different than having a bad product fit in the marketplace. If you're trying to, what what's something in, uh, if you're still trying to have a, a, asbestos uh, insulation and you're trying to sell that in the marketplace, no one is going to buy it. It doesn't fit in the market and it's actually, you're going to be in trouble. And it's no different if you're trying to treat employees like you were probably treated if you're a boomer, it's not going to fit. And absolutely. you have to have a good product market fit to have and the right employees. Absolutely. And technology, there's no place to hide anymore. So no. if, you, if you're still adhering to kind of this boss hole approach to leadership, well, there's lots of websites out there, whether it be Glassdoor or Don't Work Here or, you know, I'm working for jerks.com kind of thing. Um, People know that the word on, if you, if, so your reputation as an employer is as important as your reputation as a, as a contractor. Yeah. That you need to protect that and build that and hold it sacred as much as you do with your customers that sign your checks. And, and for 
people that still kind of buck this, and I have some that'll say, you know, I'm 80 years old, I'm 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 a Marine. This is the way I was raised. If I have to suddenly now be this coach and servant mentor and not myself, that I have to adjust my communication style to each individual, well, then I can't do that. I'm not willing to adapt. Um, my recommendation to those type of leaders is retire <laughs> um, or understand that you, you are affecting bottom line. And there's potential for a tremendous amount of profit loss if you're if you still truly believe that that's the culture that people want to work in. Yeah. Um, So sometimes we do have hard clients, but one of the exercises that I do is to actually use a checklist. Like Martin was saying, a lot of people, particularly when they hire my firm, to kind of shift the culture, um, they want a lot of tangible tools that will help them create this culture and make this shift toward what you have created, Khalil. And so we do this exercise where we have culture killers, uh, a list of culture killers, and then we have a list of award-winning cultures and some of the characteristics of those, or that you could think of them as motivators and demotivators. And we ask the listeners and audiences to just check mark how many of these dynamics, concepts, behaviors, trends uh, are happening. And we don't ask them to reveal to us what's on there, but we want them to, to see if certain things are pervasive in their culture. Maybe it's that um, there's constant change or there's a lot of lack of follow-up or leadership is intimidating or uses threat to extract performance or Another culture killer could be micromanagement or mm. politics, um, taking away perks or tolerating poor performance. So there's hypocrisy there. Uh, if there's not clear expectations, if there's a lot of unnecessary rules, if meetings aren't productive, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things, if they exist in a culture, are really going to kill the motivational level and retention of employees. But what we find is when we start looking at the list of characteristics of award-winning cultures or things that do motivate, um, and some of those could be that culture is rich in appreciation, that they do challenge employees, uh, they challenge their ability to continue to learn, that there's consistency, there's fun. I have a lot of clients now that are adding fun as a core value even, um, that they're asked, employees are asked for opinions and and for solutions, not just opinions, but also part of the solution that people are given leadership opportunities. There's ongoing training in the days when budget cuts are there. A lot of companies, the first thing they'll do is cut training. Don't um, continue to invest in those employees and continuing to train, even like during COVID um, all of a sudden, a lot of people wanted to cut the training budget. And I kept saying, no, you need to train these people on how to use zoom or Microsoft teams and how to build trust virtually or remotely. Um, other, other concepts that exist in award-winning cultures, there's a lot of recognition that's fair. It's just not doled out alphabetically. <laughs> oh, it's your name. We, we already sent thank you notes to all the A's. Now your last name begins with B's. No, no we're talking about really, truly uh, deserved recognition. And respect is very much a predominant concept. That managers are role models. This is a really big one when you start looking at these award-winning companies that Managers that are in that role are not there because of tenure. They're there because they are the embodiment of servant mentorship. 
um, that there's social interaction, that there's teamwork, that we do tolerate some errors. We don't expect people to be perfect. And above and beyond that there's a, a culture rich in trust. And so these lists, when we ask people to, to check them, make sure that these things are pervasive, there usually is some check marks on the culture killers or demotivators. And there's some, even in the same company where they're doing things right, the motivators are there. And I tell them that for every check mark that you had in the demotivators column, you are watering down or negating the power of the positive. So for example, yeah. I was um, in a company where the owner went on and had like a big company picnic and he did it on a Saturday and he, he gave everybody logo wear jackets with their name on it. And the kids were invited and uh, he even brought beer and he says, well, I'm really mad because I gave these people this beautiful party and gave them a rah-rah speech, but yet they're still not performing. And as a matter of fact, I even I caught somebody destroying some machines out of anger. And it seems like it almost was worse now that it's worse that I've done these things, Sexter, you've told me I need to do. But he did them while still tolerating all of the horrible things that went on in the company. So just because you slap the lipstick on the pig doesn't suddenly make the pig beautiful. You have to have it, an absence of the negative things in order for your positive things to really, really work. Hey, Christine, uh, with your permission, you we have a, a great list of motivators and demotivators with the caveat, please don't use this without permission. But with your, <laughs> with your okay, we'll put that in the show notes. Yes, and I, I would encourage people to look at that. If you do want to use it in your company, I'm, I just would suggest you shoot me a quick email or a phone call. Um, of course, I'm going to say yes, but um, you know, the mark of an ethical leader is somebody who respects right. the work of others, and so that's all that I ask. So yes, I'm happy to give away my content for free. And what I would suggest you do is take it yourself. Say, what, which of these are pervasive in my company? And be really honest. It really is excellent. But as you read through that, uh, the yeah. uh, it just really is excellent. And one thing, uh, a point I'd like to make is that as I read through this, now everybody can't see it, but one thing that's not on there is money. Where does <laughs> money rank as a motivator? And I mean, we've all heard all kinds of things. I'm interested in what, where does money rank? That's a great question. And again, again, I've written so many books on the power of money and actually the powerlessness or even the destructive element in trying to use money as a reward or motivator. And I get a lot of excitement and people interested because the title of it is motivating without money. And I do make a case where you should not use money as a motivator because it has what I call a diminishing return uh, in that it has some power in the beginning when you hire someone that it, it acts as an attractor or a, a pull as it's known to HR people into getting them interested in working for you. And they want to make sure that they are being paid fairly. And again, there's a lot of tools online for free where people can check based on their job duties and their zip code for cost of living to see if they're being paid fairly. I recommend from an employee st employer standpoint that pay fairly, but don't pay exorbitantly pay maybe 10% above the going rate for the results that you're wanting to garner from that person. And then what's more important is once you bring that person into the culture, 
that your culture becomes the retention tool. This goes back to the old adage that people don't quit the company. They don't quit their job. They quit you, their boss. And many people have even left. And the stories are voluminous of people who have quit their job or disengaged and maybe even gone toxic. Not because of the money, but because of the culture. They just can't stand one more day of it. And they leave the money on the table and walk away. Um, So when you look at the numbers, to be objective about this, pay is a lot like body hygiene. It really isn't an issue until it stinks. (laughs) (laughs) And if your pay stinks, then yes, it is the number one reason people will quit their job. Yeah. And go looking for one that pay is fair. But as long as your pay is fair, and I really want people to listen to this, as long as you know because you've done salary surveys or you've looked it up or you've even gotten feedback from candidates or your employees, that once it's fair, it drops to number 12 as a call, a primary cause of turnover. Number 12, people don't – once they ad- have the money and they adopt a lifestyle to the money and they know it's fair – it is not a reason people quit their job by any means. So when HR people come to me and say, well, ah, they're quitting for 50 cents more an hour. No, they're not. No, they're not. They're quitting you or they're quitting their boss. There's more to it. If the pay is fair, 50 cents after taxes really only equates to about five to $700 a year in somebody's paycheck, assuming a 33% tax burden. So... It really is not. The human psyche and the stress that would would put on the human psyche to tolerate that stress and changing a job, it's not worth 50 cents. When people do quit for 50 cents, it's because they are either making minimum wage and trying to support a family at the poverty rate or even worse, which is why I tell everyone, even those that tend to want to hire very, very basic entry level, Pay the going rate in your city for that job and 10% more. I don't care what the minimum rate is. Um, it, it's about market demand. You let the market drive what you have to pay for that, those results from that human in your market. And then more importantly, create an award-winning culture full of these motivators. That's what keeps people engaged. That's what keeps people wanting to give you best performance. But if money does stink, it raises to the top as to why people will leave you. I can't so, remember. So, uh, no, money is not a motivator nor a retention tool. And here's one more story on that. I've seen another company go the other way where he gave huge bonuses at the end of the year to his salespeople, like six figures, given a $100,000 bonus. And sometimes that would mean 100% doubling someone's salary. Well, he expected their efforts to double. <laughs> Well, I, I just doubled his pay. He should be doubling his efforts. I should see that $400,000 pay next year. And so that became very dysfunctional and it, the expectation wasn't there. So you get that diminishing returns with money. Once it's fair and people and the culture's great, money is not, and, and I, I can speak to this for weeks and I have, and it's people know in their hearts that they're not just there for the money. They're there to, to be valued and appreciated and contribute something back to their job that is also valued. Yeah. Well, I think there's so much that um, we can talk about on this topic. And I know it's one that seems very intangible and impractical to probably a lot of contractors, but I hope that they got some 
ideas from this and they're thinking inside their own company how they can make these things a reality um, and that they got some uh, ideas from some of the examples that are practical that we gave. And I think the first step, in my opinion, would be go download this checklist from the show notes uh, or on the cashflowcontractor.com and um, go through the checklist that Christine has created and understand where you stand right now. And you're not going to change overnight. It's going to have to be a long process of just being intentional about it um, and spending time on it as well. So Christine, how can any of our listeners reach out to you and connect with you either on social, your website or your book? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Your books. My, um, my two latest books are available on Amazon right now, but you can find me. What are they called? Well, the latest one that's just come out is the top 100 worst employees. It was written after the top 100 worst bosses, but the top 100 worst employees had to learn from the very worst, how to be your very best. It's a collection of stories from HR professionals all over the country. And the stories range from being tragic to outrageously funny. And then our other book is Rolling Out the Recognition, Employee Retention Strategies for Manufacturers. Mm. It too is a list of 50 ideas that small companies, um, not just manufacturers, because many of the ideas are universal, can use that cost little to no money, that really are valued by employees, that improve engagement, improve, improve retention. But people can find me just by my name. Uh, my website and my social media are all Christine Sector, and that's uh, with a K. So it's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-E-S-E-X-T-E-R. Thank you for this opportunity. It was truly a pleasure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a blast. We're, we're, there's so, really there's so you. much more. I, I decided not to disrupt things by things I've heard you say in the past that uh, would be really gems. But, uh, Khalil, I think we need to, to uh, make a note to do a uh, – podcast on identifying your own culture um, okay. of your business. Cause I think if you have that articulated, it's easier to translate that. And it does. Anyway, I think we need to do that. So, <laughs> okay, we'll do that. We'll do that. Well, um, hope that you have a wonderful rest of 2021, Christine. And thank you so much for being on. Um, thank you to our listeners. You can find us online, the cashflowcontractor.com. We've got great stuff on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and soon YouTube. So uh, please check all those things out. And we've got a great newsletter as well. So feel free to subscribe in the show notes. But I uh, hope that you're having a week of less stress, more time, and more money. Uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Cashflow Contractor. Check out our website in the show notes or visit thecashflowcontractor.com.